You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Maximilian Uriarte is a creator of the webcomic Terminal Lance. He enlisted in the United States Marine Corps at the age of 19, and in spite of his high test scores, he joined the infantry as an 0351 assaultman and did two tours in Iraq in 2007 and 2009. His new graphic novel is The White Donkey. Thank you for joining me, Max. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, you wrote that you began being interested in filmmaking at the age of 15. Yeah. Since I was 15 or so, I had had it in my head that I wanted to make film. I wanted to do animation. And that's sort of where I've shifted my life in that direction. And the Marine Corps was actually part of that in a weird way. How so? That's a big decision to make at the age of 19. If you're obviously an accomplished guy with great test scores, ready to go to college, why take this detour to Iraq? (laughs) Because I I felt like if I were to define myself, if I were to give myself a title, it would be a creator or in other words, an artist. And as an artist, I felt like I needed to gain some kind of worldly experience uh, before I could really create any art that actually mattered to anybody in the world. So um, in my 19-year-old mind, I was like, what's the craziest thing I could do right now? And this is 2006, so the war in Iraq was going on pretty full swing. And uh, I was at the right age, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to Iraq. What's uh, what's the quickest way I could go to Iraq? And uh, the easy answer to that was the Marine Corps Infantry. <laughs> that, as I say, is a big decision. And you... Why did you join the infantry instead of hang back or or go somewhere else? Oh, you know, like I figured if I was going to join the military in any capacity, I, you know, I to me, <laughs> no offense to my Pogue brethren here, but uh, Pogue is an acronym for personnel other than grunts. Um, <laughs> but uh, no offense to them. But if I figured if I was going to join the military in any capacity, what was the point if it was not to be an infantryman and to actually go uh, to Iraq or go to combat in some uh, some way? You know, one of the things about the Iraq war, as I was reading this uh, novel, what I realized is this was our most diffuse war. In other words, in that every other war was concentrated um, five years, six years. This thing's been going on forever. And... In terms of the personnel, everything's been kind of spaced out. It's fought over a big area. And we see this in this book, in the novel. Um, thing, you know, they get there, uh, Abe and, and uh, Garcia get there, and there's not much to do. So that's a really interesting way to experience war because when it's so diffuse, when it's so spread out, each little part of war becomes that much more intense. Yeah, you know, I think that this war in particular is really unique in American history in that it has sort of lingered for so long. I mean, over the last 13 years, really like half of my life, we've been at war uh, in some capacity as as a country, um, which is a really weird thing. I mean, it really is like throughout American history, this is like a strange war. Um, and not only is the war... 
uh, kind of diffused and spread out. But I mean, you have less um, active duty people fighting in the war over a really long period of time. Uh, it really is a unique time in American history. And I think that um, every war, though, has those like boring uh, times to them, though. I think anybody that goes to any war has had some like really boring <laughs> downtime. <laughs> it's just that most movies and stories aren't made about those those experiences. <laughs> what made you choose to hone in on the humdrum in the Iraq war in your story? You know, that I it was more reflective of my experience in the war. And I knew I wanted to make a book about Iraq, but I, I didn't want it to be some epic combat, you know, uh, event, because that was never really my experience while I was in Iraq. Like when I was in Iraq, it was boring. Uh, it was it was hot and, and annoying and it was just terrible. Uh and occasionally some scary things would happen, but I mean, it wasn't like, you know, it, it wasn't Operation Phantom Fury. It wasn't like D-Day. We weren't storming the beach or anything. And um, that was my experience. And I didn't want to write a story that wasn't reflective of my actual experience. When you were at war, is that when you started uh, the Terminal Lance Strip? Um, I came up with the idea actually when I came back from Iraq the first time. So after 2008. Uh, that was actually when I created Terminal Lance itself, but it, it didn't. I didn't publish it. Um, it was an idea. I did one sort of test comic for it, uh, and it, it didn't really go anywhere until I came back from Iraq the second time, uh, and I had more downtime because once you once you're a two pump chump, as they call them, uh, <laughs> you go on two combat deployments, you're kind of done. You're you just sort of finish out your contract with the military if you don't plan on reenlisting. Uh, so I was just sort of sitting around in Hawaii. Um, and I had more free time, and, and I was uh, fapped over to the base com cam, uh, combat camera uh, shop. And so that was when I created Terminal Lance. That was when I published Terminal Lance. It was uh, January 5th, 2010 is the uh, Terminal Lance birthday. <laughs> you were just using a lot of terms now that come straight out of the book. And that's one of the pleasures of reading this book is this immersion in an argot that's Almost as dense as a clockwork orange. Not quite, but I, I, I actually. So, talk about at two levels your own immersion in learning all the terms and learning all the technology and what all these things refer to as a as a marine, but also in trying to reveal those and immersing your readers in the same thing. Um, so when you join the Marine Corps, what you don't realize when you get in there is like the, it is there is a whole separate uh, dialect of English going on in the Marine Corps. <laughs> like it really is. And it's unique to the military environment and specifically to the Marine Corps, too. Um, like just the way people talk, uh, the 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 mannerisms that people have is so unique to the military and the Marine Corps environment. Like, hey, you daggone devil dog. What you doing, warrior? <laughs> Hello, you who come here. <laughs> like it's just so you know you have to you have to be in it to really get it too. Um, and so when I write about it, when I write about it in the book, or I write about it in uh, in Terminal Lance, the the comic strip. I try to be as authentic to that as I can uh, to immerse the reader, whether they're a marine. If they're a marine, they appreciate it because they understand it and they know uh, the lingo. And if they're not a marine. Uh, you know, it's not like you don't know what's going on. Like you can sort of pick up on things, and if there's something you don't understand, you can kind of Google it or whatever. Um, but I, I don't like to to hold people's hands too much in that. And it's like if if they want to get into it, they're more than welcome to. And I think that if people are really interested in it, they will uh, make an effort to get into it. 
Well, I like that kind of uh, putting us in a world. You do a really good job of what in the science fiction genre is called world building. And the whole world of Iraq, your deployment, where they are, and even who they become when they come back is really separate from normal American life. Yeah, um, the the narrative structure of the book, I put a lot of time uh, into like that. That was fundamentally the most important part of it. And I studied uh, story a lot. Uh, story was kind of my specialty when I was at the California College of the Arts in Oakland. Um, we actually had uh, Mark Andrews teaching a story class. And that was probably I, I think I gained more from that one class than I did anything else at that entire school. Uh, but Mark Andrews, he was directing Brave at Pixar at the time, uh, and he'd come over at night and teach the story class. And I just I learned so much about character arcs and story building and uh, making it all work on a on a very uh, professional Pixar level. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, it's interesting to be able to to take that um, sort of training or knowledge of storytelling and actually put it into a military environment, which I think no one's ever really tried to do before. Well, I think the 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 power of narrative in this is really strong, and that's what carries it through. It's a it's a very page turning experience, and yet there's so much space in the art, and I think in the story, it really has a lot of room to breathe. Whereas I think I've seen other graphic novels that seem more crowded. There's too much happening on the page and stuff. Whereas this just there's a sense of almost underlying melancholy that really permeates this story. Yeah, you know, as far as the artwork specifically, um, you know, part of it is that um, there's actually, so there's this really awesome book called Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud. Um, and in it, he talks about how the average reader spends three seconds on a single comic panel. And so for me, I'm thinking to myself, well, I don't want to draw really intensive detail in every single panel if the reader's only going to spend three seconds on it. Um, so for me, I'm really lazy. So that's really what it comes No, uh, but <laughs> what was really important for me um, creating the book on an artistic level uh, from an illustration standpoint was um, maintaining uh, a focus on what the reader is actually interpreting and going through while they're reading the book. And so if I need them to focus on someone's face, I'm not going to draw the background because I want the, the face matters. The face is the only thing that matters in that uh, panel. So what's the point of drawing the background? You're just going to distract people. There's going to be too many lines. And from a filmmaking standpoint, you know, there's certain things you can do really easily in film that you can't really do uh, in a graphic novel or in a comic book. And one of those things is even like depth of field which it, on a camera you'd be able to really easily control. Um, and as a photographer, I'm familiar, familiar with this. But uh, And what I mean by that is by focusing on the, the foreground character of the face and then blurring out the background, um, which in a graphic novel, usually when people draw that, they'll end up drawing the whole background and everything, which you wouldn't actually normally see in a photograph or in a film. So um, for me, it was, it was immensely important um, how to train the – or not how to train, but how to uh, – keep track of and draw the reader's eye through each page and figure out um, what they need to see in order to gain the maximum amount of uh, story out of it without um, overcrowding it. Now, you started with Terminal Lance. How did you draw Terminal Lance? Did, was it 
pen on paper scanned up and uploaded to the web? I'm curious about the the technology of getting a web comic going. Um, so the the web comic back in 2010. Uh, this was before. Um, so I I built the website myself. I sort of Googled my way through building a website. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, and uh, I was originally doing the comic strip by hand, so I would do it on paper. Um, I, I did it on like a Bristol uh, paper, and then I did it with ink. Um, and so I would draw uh, the comic strip, three panels, and then I would scan it into the computer, and I would add all the text in Photoshop. Um, and then I think what happened was I moved. I got out of the Marine Corps, so I ran strip like 35, I think. I don't remember the exact number. Um, I switched to 100% digital uh, drawing. And by that, because I moved, I didn't have a drafting table anymore. So I was like in between places and, and I was sort of in transit all the time. Um, so I just had to do the whole thing on my computer using a, a Wacom uh, Intuos tablet. And then uh, after the Kickstarter, I was able to buy a, um, a Cintiq uh, monitor. So now I use a 22-inch uh, drawing monitor to draw Terminal Lance. And that's actually what I also drew the white donkey on. Was uh, It's all 100% digital. That's really interesting. Now, um, talk about three panels is an interesting choice for a strip about the Marines. Did, why did you make that choice? Um, you know, originally, Terminal Lance was sort of modeled after another webcomic called Penny Arcade, uh, which is a comic about video games and, and stuff, which I, I, I'm a huge video game nerd. I love playing games. Uh, and so I was like, I want to make a webcomic. How do I make one? I sort of looked at Penny Arcade, what they were doing, and that's usually a three-panel strip. Um, but honestly, I think three panels is kind of perfect because I've sort of worked out a really good formula for creating comic strips uh, in this sort of three-panel setup. It's, it, seems, it's, it seems really like formulaic at this point, but... Uh, it took a lot of work to even get to that point to be able to really identify it. And usually what I do is I start with the I, – I usually start with a bullet point idea, which is like, you know, Staff Sergeant hates Lance Corporals. I don't know. How do we tell that joke? So that's the point of the joke is that that's what I know is the point is whatever that bullet point is. Like that's the idea I'm trying to get across with this, this strip. So the third panel is usually the punchline, which is usually sends home the point of the joke. So it's usually the punchline that comes to me first. I'll think of the punchline, which is the third panel. And then all I have to do, once I have that, it's pretty easy. You just need the setup, which is the first panel. And then you need the, the second panel just carries you from the setup to the punchline. So I call it the, the punchline, the setup, and then the carry is how I sort of think about it in my head. And um, I've, I've gotten pretty good at sort of making that work over the years. <laughs> well, it's it's uh, fascinating. I, I looked at today's... Uh panel, which is all about the, the latest news from the military uh, about the trans. I thought oh, yeah, the transgender uh, <laughs> news in the, in the whole military uh, community, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> um, this book came out of a Kickstarter. Uh, why did you seek a Kickstarter and what did it do for you? I mean, why, why didn't you just write the book and send it to a publisher? Well, so uh, the thing with a graphic novel is it's extremely time intensive. Mm -hmm. um, you can't do a 250-page graphic novel in your free time. Like, that's just not <laughs> physically possible. Um, so, it, it, you know, it became a matter of necessity. I knew I really wanted to do the book, and this was something that I was really passionate about. So I was like, how can I do it? No one's going to pay me to do it, so I'll 
do a Kickstarter. <laughs> if we raise enough money, I can work on the book full time and I can I can like really get it done. And it also paid for the printing costs and everything too. Um, and uh, yeah, the Kickstarter was was incredible. Um, uh, this was back in 2013 and the summer 2013. Uh, and I had just graduated at, at my school at CCA and I was like, you know, trying to find a job. And I was thinking of ideas like what I could do. I could either get a job at a studio or I could like lock myself into Terminal Lance and try to do that. So that was sort of the direction that I wanted to go. Um, and uh, so I did. And so I was in, I was initially asking for $20,000 uh, to cover me for I think it was like six months and then um, also pay for the printing costs and everything. And uh, we raised that in 13 hours. So that was like, <laughs> I went, went to sleep and then I woke up and it was already past the goal. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, um, and then it just kept going to 162,000, uh, which is, that's what Kickstarter tells you on the website. There's actually a little bit of fibbing on Kickstarter's part there because there's, there's fees that they take out and then there's taxes and there's all this other stuff that goes involved with it. But it was still really incredible uh to see that much support and love from my fan base that was just like you know they they were so passionate about my ability to even pull this off <laughs> uh was was really humbling it was great um yeah so I, and when i did it you know i knew the kickstarter was going to go one of two ways it was either going to go uh it was either going to fail miserably <laughs> and i was going to have and i was going to look just like a, a total idiot or it was going to be so successful that I would have no idea what to do with myself. And that was, luckily, the latter was uh, what actually happened with it. Now, um, did I, I take it most of the support must have come from the Terminal Lands fan base, which was by that time pretty large. Yeah. Um, you know, what's interesting is we had, uh, I think it was around 80,000 fans. It was less than 100,000 when I did the Kickstarter. Um, and since then, over the last two years, it's like quadrupled in size or more than that even. Uh, to we right now have over 550,000 fans on the Facebook page. Wow. Um, yeah, so it's, it's <laughs> a great. big monster on Facebook right now. Um, one of the things I think that uh, really interested me as I, as I read the book was the way that you created these two characters. Did How much did your characters come out of your terminal ants work? I mean, did you... Did you know who you were going to create? Um, you know, what's interesting, actually, is that I created the main characters, Abe and Garcia, who are in the, ter the Terminal Ants comic strip. Uh, you'll notice them come into the game around 2010, late, late 2010, so like December-ish, uh, when they start appearing on the website. That was actually when I started working on The White Donkey. That was when I started writing it, um, because I created those two characters for the book. And then I put them into the comic strip so that people would get used to them as characters because I had no idea when I was actually going to be able to create the book. Um, so then by the time I, the book came out, people had already had these characters in their lives for the last like four years, uh, at least Abe and Garcia. Um, there's a lot of characters in, in the book that are not ever in the comic strip, like uh, Corporal Albrecht and uh, the Corman and, and Olsen and other characters. But um, Abe and Garcia, people are really familiar with, and uh, which I, th I think worked really well for whatever reason, you know. <laughs> and... Um, the other thing about them is that Abe and Garcia are really, uh, they're both based on me um, on some level. And, and Garcia has always been kind of Abe's like conscious, her conscience. Uh, and um, and when I say they're both based on me, they really kind of literally are. I mean, I'm actually half uh, Mexican and I'm half Jewish. 
And so Abe's side <laughs> is really this kind of Jewish side from Portland, mm-hmm. uh, where I lived for about three years. But I actually grew up in Corvallis, Oregon. Uh, and that's my, my Mexican side's actually all from Corvallis. And that's sort of like this uh, dichotomy of myself that these two characters represent. So so the, the dialogue in the book, there's a great dialogue that opens between the two of them where they're kind of talking about why they got into the Marines. Um, that dialogue is you talking to yourself, essentially. <laughs> yeah, kind of. I mean, and a lot of the dialogue was taken from real, you know, dialogues that I've had with uh, people in the Marine Corps. Like uh, Garcia, uh, in that scene that you're talking about, um, mm-hmm. in the beginning, they're in the field and they're in the, the sleeping bags and they're kind of going back and forth about why. Well, why'd you join the Marine Corps? Oh, you know. Um, that was taken almost... Uh, word for word from a conversation that I had with uh, another poolie. So when you're when you when you enlist in the Marine Corps, you go to MEPS, which is the military entrance processing station, and um, they usually send you to like a hotel for the night, and then they ship you off to boot camp the next day because uh, it's all timed and scheduled. So um, I had to share a room with this this dude who uh, this other guy who had enlisted in the Marine Corps, and um, I remember asking him what uh <laughs> what his uh what his MOS was what he picked and uh he uh or no we were we were talking about ASVAB scores which is like the entrance uh, test for the the military and so I I scored like a 92 on it and uh, I was like oh well what did you uh would you score in your your ASVAB score and he's all like oh like a 35 I couldn't do anything but infantry or motor T <laughs> I knew I didn't want to be a grunt because I'm not crazy <laughs> so I went motor T and I was like, oh, that's cool. And he's like, what'd you get? I was like, a 92. He's like, what What MOS did you pick? I was like, infantry. <laughs> uh, so that was like an awkward conversation. But, um, yeah, a lot of it's taken from, you know, these real life experiences sort of shifted and molded into this narrative to make it work. Well, I think that's one of the more interesting aspects of this book. I was thinking about this book because right at the beginning, before the uh, thing begins, there's a big thing. This is a work of fiction. Yeah. And I'm thinking, no, this is not a work of fiction. This is, <laughs> this is fictionalized memoir as a graphic novel. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, like for me, I personally feel like as soon as you – so I, I really don't like it when movies or whatever market themselves is based on a true story because mm-hmm. any, anything based on a true story is inherently fiction because as soon as you insert one lie into a story, it becomes a work of fiction. Uh, absolutely. So for me, this whole book is a work of fiction. It doesn't really matter how much of it is real and how much isn't because you know I'm not making any claims that any of it's real as far as I'm concerned. It's all fiction. But it is very grounded in my own experience of pretty much my story of going to Iraq you know, why I enlisted uh, and sort of how my experience in Iraq was, um, especially relative to other experiences in Iraq. And, uh, you know, the framework of the story is very much my own, which is I'm from Portland uh, or from Oregon. And, you know, I enlisted in the Marine Corps, went to Hawaii. I was with 3-3 India Company, uh, went to Iraq, Fallujah, um, Zidon, the region. I was in Company Jump Platoon, et cetera. So a lot of that stuff is all basically my story, but it, it is all fictionalized at the end of the day. So to well, me, it's a work of fiction. <laughs> well, I, that I understand. I think that what you're doing here is um, – and it's a time-honored tradition. You're tweezing the facts uh, and fictionalizing your life, in a sense, to get at a more intimate and direct truth, uh, an emotional truth. Yeah, exactly. And that's um, 
you know, for me, it was a matter of figuring out what that whole experience meant to me on a, on a really existential level and making my story work to fit the point that I wanted to make. So, exactly, as you, you just said. You use the word existential. I think that's a perfect word to describe this book and not necessarily a word I use maybe often to describe books about war. There's a certain, and this gets back again to this issue of space, There's this, this whole book has a feel, very contemplative feel about it. The characters and... Um, the reader, as a result, end up thinking a lot about why we're here, what we're doing, and, and why or whether it matters. And I think that that's a interesting approach for uh, military fictionalized military biography. Yeah, you know, I think that um, <clears throat> what always bothered me about a lot of military fiction or military literature is that it is so literal. It's so very, uh, you know, on 1900 hours on this day, Zulu time, we infiltrated this area and swept, and you know, whatever. It gets really military and it gets really kind of boring. And I think it sort of ignores the larger uh, importance of like, does this matter? Like, what is this? Like, what does it mean? to be in the Marine Corps? What is the actual point of this whole crazy experience? Um, and that's really what I wanted to get at with this book. And, you know, I personally, uh, as a writer, I'm a big fan of surrealism. Mm -hmm. And so I really wanted to put a lot of these surreal elements uh, into the book. And a lot of them are, are really um, captured from my own experiences. I mean, the white donkey was a very real uh, animal that I ran into in, in Iraq. And um, as well, the coyote in 29 Palms, uh, I was standing firewatch in 29 Palms and uh, in, in the hooch at, at Camp Wilson. And um, I remember just uh, standing at the door and looking out and seeing this coyote. Just It was just quiet in the middle of the night, four in the morning, you know, three in the morning. And uh, just watching this coyote so quietly just sort of wander around the camp and looking through trash cans and stuff. And, and that's sort of where those things come from, are these really surreal moments that I actually did have with these animal encounters, which is weird. But uh, they found their way into the narrative, too. Well, I I think they do add a touch of surrealism. And two, the other aspect, the surreal aspect of this is uh, Kafka-esque in that the way you portray the Marines as, a, as if it were a business and it's just this incredibly arcane bureaucracy with a bazillion weird rules and, and its own very peculiar language that's used to kind of control and manipulate the, the people within for reasons that are sometimes good for them. Sometimes it doesn't matter. It's just what people feel like doing. Yeah, you know, uh, I think the the Marine Corps, I mean, it's it's the military. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, you enlist in the military and you expect it's going to be kind of military. Like, that's, <laughs> <laughs> you can't really get out of that. Like, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's part of the deal. Um, no, but I mean, the Marine Corps is its own thing. I think it's it's kind of beautiful in in its own way too. Mm -hmm. I think that there is sort of like a, a a wonderfulness to what the Marine Corps really is, um, and uh, you know, I I think that. I think people would not like Terminal Lance if Terminal Lance was just like mean, if it was just like picking on the Marine Corps for no reason, mm -hmm. um, which I don't think it ever does. I think that Marines identify with Terminal Lance so well, uh, the comic strip and the graphic novel, just because it's so I try to be so unapologetic, but I also try to be real about it. Like I'm just I'm saying what is actually 
what it's actually like, like really. Um, and uh, I'm just being honest. And I think if Terminal Lance was not honest, like people would not like it. But the fact that it is and people can identify with it and go like, yeah, that's that's really what it's like. Um, <laughs> it, it makes people really appreciate it, I think. Well, I yeah. I, coming away from this book, I have a, a, a great appreciation for the Marines and for the way that it's all architected. And I think, but as I say, I think that you do a good job, especially with this particular war, because of the, its diffuse nature, it really lends itself to these really odd moments where there's a, a scene where they're sent out to look for a it's a, a hidden weapon sent out to look for a weapons cache. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's the uh, the opening scene where they're they're trying to find the uh, the hidden weapons cache that the uh, the lieutenant has hidden somewhere in the Bellows training area. And it ends up just being he lost his rifle and made all the Marines go look for it <laughs> and, you know, try to play it off his training. Uh, and that's, you know, that's just the sort of silly stuff that happens in the Marine Corps. I mean, uh, when I was in Iraq, we had a lieutenant. He lost his rifle. Uh, and uh, one of the corporals in the platoon uh, found it and he took it and he just like buried it in the trash. <laughs> and they were just waiting to see how long it would take him to notice. And he didn't even notice. Like he never even noticed. So they just like put it back on his sleeping bag. It was just all covered in trash. And had no <laughs> idea what happened to it. Like, <laughs> um, And, you know, it's it's these things that are just um, they're so funny when you're there. Just these random uh, true life things that, um, don't, you know, they're not action stories, but they're they're great stories, you mm-hmm. know. And that's that's what I wanted to get across with this book, and that's what I try to get across with Terminal Lance. Is it's not all just like action packed, do raw, uh, kind of stuff. Like there there's a lot to the experience of the of the Marine Corps and the whole military thing, and then joining during a time of war and and going to Iraq. Like there's so much more to it. Um, and what's really worth noting too is that. You know, as far as combat deployments go, um, you know, you enlist in the Marine Corps. You spent four years in the Marine Corps. You spend only a year of that going on combat deployments or any deployment, really. It's six, you know, you usually get two six-month deployments out of you. So you spend a quarter of your time actually on a deployment. But the other three quarters of it, you're not doing that. You're in Hawaii or you're training or you're doing something else. And so all that stuff I think is worth writing about. And you can make good stories out of that. Uh, and that's what I try to do with Terminal Lands. Well, yeah, I really love the parts that were set in Hawaii and in 29 Palms particularly. This book has a kind of, I think, a, an interesting California feel to it. Oh, <laughs> well, um, you know, I was stationed in Hawaii uh, and uh, I, I love Hawaii. I think it's a really beautiful place. I can't wait to go back someday. And uh yeah, 29 Palms is a very infamous base um, in the Marine Corps, and people all kind of hate it. And uh, <laughs> um, So I definitely wanted to include that in there. And it also it gave me room. Uh, the main reason 29 Palms is actually in the book is to sort of support the metaphorical uh, or the, the metaphysical arc that's going on in the story, uh, which involves the coyote and the white donkey and, and all these other animal metaphors and things. Because um, there's really two stories being told in the White Donkey uh, mm-hmm. simultaneously. There's Abe's very literal story, uh, going to Iraq and you know coming home, etc. Um, but then there's also this other story on a really sort of metaphysical level that um, is not literal and it's not ever spelled out literally. You kind of just have to put the pieces together of what happens and what people are saying. The dialogue, a lot of it has a lot of double meaning to it. Um, so it's, it's, there's two kind of arcs going on at the same time, uh, in the book. 
the arc of the animals is really interesting. And I think that that's a really nice way to use pure art to tell a story, just the appearance of these creatures and the way they, they map across the the story. Um, I, that was an interesting choice, I thought. Yeah, you know, and what's funny is I never, uh, I actually did not plan on calling the book The White Donkey until about five minutes before I did the Kickstarter campaign. <laughs> <laughs> and um, no, I'd like the, the White Donkey uh, had always been this ongoing theme that I wanted to use, and I, I knew I really liked it. I knew I wanted to use it. Um, but I was like, should I call the book The White Donkey? Is it going to confuse people? Like, And it, it does confuse people, but I think in a good way. I think it's like, what does that mean, you know? And what I love about the white donkey in the book uh, on a personal level is that it's it's simultaneously the most and least important part of the entire book. Like you could read the whole story and ignore the white donkey and you'll still get the same story. Um, but if you look into it a lot deeper, it kind of becomes the most important part of, again, that that metaphysical character arc that's going on in the background. Um, and so it, it's such an important piece of the book. I, I called it the white donkey. And what that does is the reader now is going, why is this book called The White Donkey as soon as they pick it up? And so they're on the lookout for The White Donkey in the whole book. And then when it pops up, they're like, oh, my God, that's The White Donkey. What does it do? And then <laughs> it doesn't really do anything. And they're like, oh, OK. <laughs> but they're, it's important because they know the book's called The White Donkey. And so the whole time I was making this book, I was really conscious of what the reader is interpreting everything as and how they're going through it um, and what they might run into reading the book. That was ultimately more important than uh, anything else as I was designing the pages, et cetera, because uh, on a storytelling uh, level, you know, there's nothing more important than how the reader interprets what you're putting out there because it's more important than what you're even putting out there because they can interpret it a totally different way. So you have to really think about how the reader is reading it more so than anything else as you're designing a graphic novel. Well, the the animals for me uh, brought to mind the, the whole spirit world and these kind of analogs of of moral and ethical forces moving outside of our ken that are embodied in things we see around us and that um, draw us through these embodiments into those moral and spiritual movements. Yeah, um, that, you know, that they really do represent uh, spiritual metaphors. And I, I don't like to give away anything, so mm. I don't want to no. I don't want to say too much about them. But I mean, you know, I think you could uh, you can interpret it in a lot of ways. And what I always like to do is um, uh, whenever people like when before I publish the book, before I even put out the book, I sent it around to a bunch of my friends and close friends and stuff. And uh they would read it and they'd get they'd come back and they'd be like, oh, my God, it was so amazing. And, I, and the first question I would always ask them is, what did you think the white donkey represented? And they were like, huh, I guess I didn't even think about the white donkey because there's all this other stuff happening. <laughs> but to me, it's the most important part of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is open to interpretation. Though. I don't like to kind of give it out. Now, uh as a graphic novel, you do some interesting things. I think the design, the simple design and the drawing of the characters is is one of the key element choices you make. The, the pages, again, we get back to the space on the pages. It's more black or background color than white or background white, yeah. color than, <laughs> than our lines. Yeah, you know, white, uh, again, you know, it's the white donkey. So white mm-hmm. was a very thematic uh, choice throughout the book. I didn't want to have uh, black. I mean, you know, these are very, like, technical tr- choices you have to make when you're designing a book, and all of it's important. 
Um, and, you know, some comics do black uh, borders and stuff. Um, and th- for the white donkey, I felt like that wasn't the appropriate uh, look for the book. It, it really needed to kind of play into this white, uh, taking advantage of a lot of the white space. And, uh, for instance, I'm working on a new book, then I, I don't think I'm really going to use any white space in it at all for the type of story that it is and what I'm trying to get across with it. So it's a totally different uh, thing, but I think it really works for the white donkey and giving things room to breathe uh, and giving things space in the book to kind of have these moments of silence or at least try to get them into the book in a way that works. I, I love the perceptions that you have of the Iraqi citizens, and especially when they stop and talk. There's a really great uh, conversation that uh, one fellow has where he's ta- telling uh, Abe how arrogant he, yeah. he sees them as. <laughs> yeah, and you know that took me a long time uh, for me personally to kind of come to terms with because mm-hmm. for me, you know, going to Iraq was a really personal experience, and and I think it is for a lot of veterans. Um, you know, it becomes this like you know existential journey for them uh and they come back and they have this like you know oh i I was in iraq and it took me a long time to really come to terms with the fact that that was so arrogant to try to gain some kind of existential enlightenment out of the expense of other people's war um and the iraq war as a thing is not my war it never belonged to me it belongs to the people of iraq and it's a terrible thing that's going on over there um especially right now with with isis and everything and, um, you know, to, to take a step back and look at it uh, and look at it, look at yourself in a way that's, you know, I, I felt bad thinking of, of the way that, you know, I thought that I was gaining some enlightenment out of this war. And it was just like, wow, how arrogant is that to think that I could even gain some kind of enlightenment out of this war? Another subject that comes up is uh, thoughts of suicide. And I think that this is you handle this really well, and there are some really just absolutely riveting illustrations. That's no words, just with a little imprint of the upside down imprint oh, yeah. of the white donkey. That uh, yeah, that was kind of the climax of the book. And there's um, yeah, the donkey is uh, is sort of hidden in the corner on the other page as sort of a, a metaphor. And um, it's actually designed as a flip book. So it, mm-hmm. it, um, if you roll the pages, it, it animates, it walks. Right. And that's sort of me mixing my animation background into the, <laughs> into the book in some way. And uh, I wanted to make it longer originally, but I was like, man, I already have so many pages in this book. Like, <laughs> I just can't keep adding pages. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the subject of suicide was always kind of the focus of the book. Um, and I really wanted to tell that story because I feel like it's so easy for uh people to write off uh PTSD and suicide and depression as a sort of veteran cliche um but to me as somebody who has lost uh you know four veterans to suicide people that I knew um it's really not a cliche to me and I think for a lot of marines who do know people that have killed themselves and there's too many of them uh it is not a cliche and so I wanted to illustrate that and show that and I wanted to show um how a veteran might get to that point. And I think that by showing that, it can help other veterans kind of understand their own uh, their own situation. And that was sort of the goal with this book, really, was, was uh, showing a veteran get to that point so that other veterans who might be suffering from those problems could look at it and identify with it and say, oh, I'm not the only one that feels this way. Someone else really gets it. Um, and I think that that might inspire them to go get kind of help. 
uh, if they need it. And uh, maybe they don't need help. Maybe they just need uh, to acknowledge it and to come to terms with it. Um, but that was sort of the, the underlying theme of the book from the beginning. It does seem like an opportunity to <clears throat> give both people who have no experience with it and people who might have too much experience with it a real true perspective. And you do this through the art of the story in that we start in one place and we end up in another. And I think that, that uh, the way you create that movement, the 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 steps you take us through to get there, those are powerful steps, and that's really intricately conceived on both a text and storytelling level as well as on a visual level. Oh, thank you. But, yeah, I think uh, that was that was always really important to me, um, getting to that end point. Um, and uh, what, what's also really important on a narrative level in the book is that you never, ever leave Abe's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as you get to the end of the book, when things start to kind of crumble, his world starts to crumble. The artwork even starts to get like more weird. Uh, there's a whole spread where he's like really drunk um, and there's no panel borders at all mm-hmm. in, the, in the pages of, of that experience because it is meant to be really disorienting uh, as he is really disoriented because you're seeing the world through his eyes. You're not seeing the world. Uh, from a third-person perspective, necessarily. Um, and one thing that I, I never really liked in movies or, or in storytelling is when people cut to the villain and they, they show the villain's evil plan and then they cut back to the hero. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's just sloppy storytelling. Like mm-hmm. I think that um, in order for this emotional arc to really work for Abe, you really have to be with him the whole time and you really have to see it from his point of view. And so you get that from beginning to end. You You get... Uh, you know, what it's like to, to sort of be an innocent face in the Marine Corps in the beginning as a boot, you know, in the field. And they're just like, man, this sucks, you know. And then you get that really like soul crushing reality kind of coming in near the end of the book. And you really feel that with Abe throughout the entire thing. And the alienation from his family and friends, too, The how that um, increments up further and further as he gets further, further out, as he's further and further immersed in this journey where you're taking him he becomes more and more alienated from his yeah, people at home that that was really important too because i feel like um you know that that alienation i wanted to make abe um a very imperfect character and i think a lot of people uh especially since abe is a reflection of myself i think a lot of people when they put themselves into their own work like they tend to make their their own selves really perfect they, they like have all the answers and they're like they're the ones that solve all the problems and stuff abe's a really imperfect character and he makes a lot of mistakes along the way um and he pushes people away and he uh you know mistreats uh you know people and, and his girlfriend he is kind of a dick <laughs> for lack of a better word um and especially toward the end of the book and it's sort of his own uh isolation like he's really isolating himself and um you know that is really important because i think a lot of veterans go through that and i think that's ultimately what leads to uh what can lead to suicide is that isolation and that alienation um of alienating yourself uh from people that do love you and care about you i think too i'm wondering if now that alienation is being um it's ending more because um, when you show Abe trying to call, he's trying to call on, on a phone, just a regular phone. And I'm wondering if that's lessened to any extent by the op- by you know the options now where people can talk to their loved ones via you know Skype. Um, I would say no, actually. I would say that um, if you look at st- the suicide 
statistics over the years, um, they've actually gotten way worse uh, over the last, like in this war, we've had more suicide relative to the population than in any other war uh, in American history. So those options have actually, if anything, made it uh, even worse. I, I don't know what the if there's any correlation at all, maybe not, but um, they, they don't seem to be helping uh, that. I think that, you know, there's a lot to be said about social media and uh, and and internet and that kind of stuff. Um, there is, I think, you know, back in the day, uh, there there is a, a sort of great simplicity and um, uh, it, I think a, a really helpful simplicity to the idea that you didn't have contact with anybody when you were in a war zone other than the mm-hmm. people that you were around. Like, you know, back in World War II, they would be gone for years. They would just be gone <laughs> fighting a war and it was terrible. And then they'd come home and people would be waiting for them and it was great. There was a parade and everybody was so happy to see them. And... Uh, you know, it's a really different war now. It's a really different culture that's been created because of all the technologies that we have. I think, too, that as I read this, I thought you did a really good job of describing, you know, the technology uh, that, and from, you know, uh, the IEDs, the cell blockers, chameleon, the robots. I mean, those all play a kind of... A, a minor, but not an interesting part in the story. Yeah, you know, uh, there's the IED course that they go through in Twenty Nine Palms with mm-hmm. the the coyote instructor, um, and uh, that was important. That scene I wanted to have in there just because it gives uh, civilian readers a chance to understand any of the stuff. Because <laughs> all the Marines know, all the Marines reading it have been through that course, have been through that walkthrough course where he's explaining what IEDs are, explaining different kinds of IEDs. Um, and then, uh, you know, and it allows me to explain to civilian readers, people that might not understand any of this stuff, like kind of what this stuff is and, and why it's dangerous. Um, and it also, that scene functioned as a, a method of foreshadowing for uh, um, the characters later on when they have their IED, IED encounter uh, in Iraq as Abe trips over the, the pressure plate IED. Um, and, you know, so that, that plays into it later on in, in, the, in the book. You know, I found myself thinking at one point when I was reading this, I was thinking, I was looking at one of the pictures, and I thought, well, this is a really great shot. And I thought, no, wait, wait, this isn't a movie, but, but it felt like it. And so you talked about being interested in filmmaking. Is this, have you written a screenplay for this? Uh, so actually, um, funny story, I actually wrote the screenplay first, and mm. then I made the graphic novel based on the screenplay. So essentially, the graphic novel is a storyboarded film. Like it, it's just a hundred percent storyboarded film from beginning to end. Um, you know, the only difference being the the layout of the panels is not sixteen by nine, but uh, it is actually essentially a storyboarded film. <laughs> so, is there an interest in making it? It's a it's a fantastic story, as you say. I I've talked to a few people, and I've never read a military story that focuses on the things that you focus on. Yeah, you know, I my goal... Uh, and I'm with, surprised, actually, because <laughs> it seems when you read it, you go, well, gosh, this must be most people's experience. Yeah, you know, and I, I think that's why it's done, uh, it's resonated so well with the military community, because I think that it's it's the kind of story that, you know, no one has said before, for whatever reason, like, no one's really put it out there like this before. Um, and it, I think it's just, you know, a lot of guys that get out, and they're great storytellers, they're great at talking about their experience, but I, I think that they... Um, maybe haven't quite been able to put into words like what it really meant to mm. them. And that's really what I was trying to get at with this story. Um, and 
uh, as far as making it into a film, I mean, that, that was the goal from the beginning. Like, this is what I want to do. Um, and I actually just founded uh, my own company, uh, which I intend to turn into an animation studio uh, called The White Donkey in <laughs> California Corporation. And uh, that is uh, where I plan on going next, is working animation, uh, creating The White Donkey as an animated feature and um, uh, developing other animated properties. What kind of story are you working on now? Can you tell us? Uh, yeah. I mean, so the next book that I want to do, I'm actually developing two graphic novels right now. One of them I can't really talk about because it's an existing property. But the other one uh, is another original story from me. Um, and it is not military at all. So that I'm kind of excited to do something non-military. And um, it's a story of a mother. She's the protagonist. And uh, it's it's really a story of her and her son, who is a addict, he's a meth addict, and uh, it's it's uh, the theme of it is really motherhood, um, and that's a story that is it's really personal to me too, on the same level that the White Donkey is, because I I uh, was around a lot of drug abuse uh, growing up in Oregon, um, and uh, so the story takes place in Oregon, and it's kind of around this uh, drug abuse culture, uh, and talks about addiction and, and a lot of other things. I've been speaking with Maximilian Uriarte. His new novel is The White Donkey. Thank you for joining me, Max. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.